just open the mat tree with my bat tree. <laughs> sound very Moira Rose when you yes, say Yes, that's that. what I heard. Oh, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, good. It I, love that. I was like, why is she pulling Shit's Creek out? <laughs> that's what we are. We're the Shit's Creek version of Glennon. <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's good. I'm, I'm, that's all I'm good for today. <laughs> and that's a wrap. <laughs> Hi, friends. Welcome back to our second podcast episode of Spill the Tea. We're so happy if you continued to follow us and liked us enough to listen to a second episode. Today, I have all of my tea sisters that were on the first episode back with me. So it's me, Carrie, Jen, and Mary, and Tracy, and Jody. We're going to start out with Tracy, who's going to lead us into our discussion today. She's going to read you a passage from her book, Women Gathering and Growing with Tea. So Trace, take it. Thanks, Carrie. (laughs) Not all things that look beautiful feel beautiful. Sometimes there is a sickness in the beauty. A conversation between two men in a countryside pharmacy revealed the postcard-like Hamlet's expectations, and it laid bare an illness more detrimental than the annual spread of the cold and flu cases, the required submission of the feminine. The symptoms are classic and repetitive. He was angry because of what he had been taught to expect from women, especially his wife. He knew that educating women was dangerous to the family and, ultimately, the community. He believed that if women came together, bad things would happen and families would break apart. Women who had advocated for themselves were crazy. If a man completed everyday parenting or household tasks, he gifted his wife or partner with his services. Women forgave and forgot. Women ignored bad behavior. We were brought together that first night of tea by an unfulfilled promise in our subconscious. A promise that if we stepped up to the plate and dutifully filled our roles, we would be happy. But were happiness and duty the same thing? The women of tea were skeptical about unwritten truths and were ready to look for a greater purpose and meaning, regardless of how our journeys looked to other people. Without each other's support, women would have excluded us. I'm going to stop there. Okay. In today's episode, we're going to start with the question of why do conservative cultural norms still include the unsaid belief that educating women is dangerous? a lot to take in, right? Yeah, that passage made me a little bit angry. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. The same, same here that was growing in my belly. Mm. So what do you guys think? I just want to say how well written that passage is. Tracy, you are a very talented writer. I'm sorry, but that needs to be said because you make me feel your words. Mm. You make me feel the situation that you're in and that's very powerful. And I'm, I'm very impressed by your writing. Sorry, I just, that needed to be said. Thanks, Jody. <laughs> I think that was important though, Jody, because I think what we feel, and I think other people will feel this too when they read that, is that connection to how we have experienced those words ourselves, right? Because we have, because we live in a heteronormative patriarchal society. That's where the power lies for us. So when we read those words and we think through how that has affected us, and in my case, made me live smaller, right? It's okay to be angry. It's okay to have feelings come up because it's very visceral. So I'm, I'm glad you said that, Jody, because that's my reaction as well. Yeah. 
Let's talk about that anger a little bit then maybe. I've always heard that anger is a secondary emotion Mm. and it's always, you know, masking something deeper. And, you know, two of the biggest things that it masks are fear and hurt. I think it masks Mm. other things as well, but do you think that that's true in this case? Yes. That anger is the disappointment of I am bigger than the role, the, the hole you put me in. Like we spend our lives staying in that box, square, hole, whatever it is that we've been put in and knowing that we can outgrow it, but feeling like we're afraid to because that's where we've been placed. Like we're the peg in the hole and we feel like that's where we're supposed to fit. But our whole lives we spend trying to like get back out of that hole. We know that we're bigger. We're not that small and that we've got our own ideas, our own thoughts and our own feelings about where we want to go and what we want to do that are sometimes they're in alignment with where we've been put. But a lot of times they're not, you know, there are pieces that we want to take with us or leave behind. And I don't know, it's just so hard. But I think that's where that anger comes from is that kind of resentment that we feel from people who we feel like should love us have put us in this cocoon that we want to get out of. Also, Carrie, I think when um, I was envisioning this box and like you're saying, outgrowing the box and spilling out over the edges and what is what and what happens is, like you said, the loved ones that the reaction to that spilling out is really is really challenging. And maybe that's leads to that resentment when I'm trying to spill out from it. But somehow it is threatening to our family and our and our friends because now we're behaving differently. Now, Mary, I'm having some imagery of like, you know, when you make a pizza crust and you're like pushing the dough out and then it recoils, but you keep pushing it out and then it recoils. Like that's really what it feels like, right? Like yes. in my mind, that's the imagery that I'm conjuring up now. Yeah, stretching and then maybe that's like testing the limits of the pizza pan. <laughs> Society, the pizza pan. <laughs> Who's hungry? (laughs) Totally. You saw me. I was eating before this. (laughs) Why do you think that our families have made that feel dangerous? Like what you just mentioned the word are threatened. Hmm. And when I think of danger, threatened, like the imagery I get is like a bear or a snake's going to bite you. Why is this that? I feel like the threat comes from the disappointment that you dare be bigger than I did. I think that's the threat that like, oh, you can do that. And I stopped myself. That goes along with what I was going to say, because I think two things. I think when I speak to anger, you know, the tip of the iceberg, you mentioned, Tracy, there's that image of anger is the behavior we see what's below the surface, right? I always think, at least in my life, anger shows up from grief and loss. So in this case, it's a loss of expectation of the life that was either put on me or the life that I thought I was going to have as it pertains to my role right in that life. And I think, Carrie, you're right, because I think other people, the reason they see it as threatening is because they have an expectation that was put on them. And there's this lineage. And especially if we're talking about expectations of women, right? There's this lineage of how we're supposed to behave, what our responsibilities are. And when we don't meet that expectation for whatever reason, there's disappointment and loss, right? People are 
I think Mary said disappointment, right? Like people feel those things, but they don't know how to categorize it because it's coming from expectation that's outdated, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is an old concept. We don't have to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so cool about the young people that are coming up is two things, breaking gender boundaries, right? Like blowing it all apart. Like, what is this expectation thing? And then on top of it, they've also brought this sidecar of eliminating toxic relationships alongside. And it's kind of, and I'm not speaking for my entire generation, but it's liberating. The generation behind us is like feeling like you're saying, Carrie, you know, like, damn, I wish I was brave enough to do that. And now we're like, yeah, (laughs) right? Like, we're getting Yeah. Yeah. So... I I don't know. It's super interesting to see how that has changed from generation to generation to generation. It is. Yeah, absolutely. How did you learn what being a woman is? How'd you learn about that? Where'd you come up with your concept? I gave this a lot of thought before we came together today. I was kind of thinking about like, you know, where I live, I grew up right next to my grandmother. I walked, I could walk over to my grandmother's house every day. I had both my mother and my grandmother. Gosh, I, I love both of them, my grandmother and my mother. There's a lot of guilt, guilting in my growing up. Like, well, if you don't do that, then blah, 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 blah. You know, like there is a lot of guilting into being a woman a certain way. It would make them look bad or, and not that they said that, that it would make you just knew, like, I have to act a certain way because I need to be my mother's daughter, my grandmother's granddaughter, or those are the things that I kind of thought of as growing up being around them all the time. Uh, Trace, you and I have talked about how our mothers kind of were in the same era of, of womanhood. I don't know if you had that too, that guilting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. This like, don't embarrass me. Yeah. by toe the line. And, you know, I think that, geez, th- that's how we police it. It's ingrained in us to police what and protect that. Do you think that's more acute because it's small town? Do you know what I'm saying? Because like, and this is a change in our society where like, we don't live in the neighborhoods that we used to live in with everybody. You know, I'm thinking even of like farmsteads who would just then add another house, you know, like, do you think that 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 experience for you guys was more acute because you were so close to your relatives? Yeah. So I grew up on a farmstead. I grew up with my cousins. I mean, things were brought to the family table. I talk about that in the book and discussed and taken care of. And you took, yeah, so absolutely. We had that mini society within that farmstead. It's interesting not thinking of that now because my grandmother who lived next door Her husband, my grandfather, passed away before I was born. I do think there was a part of my grandmother that I did get to see Mm. being a single woman myself my whole life. She was single in what I knew of her. Now thinking of it, probably a lot of my strength in being a single woman came from her because that's what she had to do, right? Like she had to learn how to become a single person at that point in her life because her husband had passed away. I think he had only passed away a year before I was born. I really kind of grew up in her learning to be that independent. I can't, I've got to start to learn to do things for myself kind of way, you know? That's an amazing story, Carrie, because you had that role model. It made that okay for you because for me, I didn't have an example of what that looked like. So I married very young. Honestly, I just put that together right now. Like in this moment, I just put that together. I love epiphanies. Yeah. 
Yeah. Interesting. Mary, you look like you have something to say. Oh, I, I had that same reaction with Carrie, like, oh, wow, that is really amazing. And so then I'm trying to think of, you know, what my, what my role models were thinking of my grandmother and my grandfather died young. And when I say young, like in his, in his fifties, I was just thinking that she always worked in her, her experience. I, I learned at a, a young age that my grandfather was quite brutal. I'm not having that epiphany right now, but I'm marinating on it. <laughs> I think that's okay. <laughs> it's a big question. I think there's another thing too, in terms of how did you learn what being a woman is? I think a lot of it for us, we were, we've talked about before latchkey kids. So a lot of what we learned about womanhood, we saw on TV. And when I th- saw this question, I thought, oh, I remember the soaps were always on the afternoon soaps were always on when I got home from school, even when I was little. And when I would play with Barbies, I would be enacting out the scenarios that I was hearing on the soaps. <laughs> And the women always had these like very stereotypical roles in the soap operas. And I loved Barbie. So I just, that was one of the images that was brought to mind. It's funny you bring up the soap operas. The the one that my family used to watch, all the women in my family used to watch was on at three o'clock. Mine too. I bet you it's the same one. Yeah. Interesting. It was like accepted for the women to stop their work at at three o'clock to watch that. Same. It It was like, okay for them to stop drink a cup of coffee, watch that show, and then get their ass back in the kitchen. <laughs> Controlled escapism. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, let's let them have that. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe it was, you know, that three o'clock. Of course, my mom worked, but like my, I talk about my grandmother every day. She religiously stopped at three o'clock to watch that show. So did my grandmother. She lived in the same small town as your grandmother. I wonder if every all the women in the town watched the same soap. Maybe. They probably did. <laughs> and then they talked about it when they got together. <laughs> and I'm wondering if the soap just reinforced the conservative roles. You know, so I feel like maybe they were consuming that same message over and over again every day at three o'clock. What false lessons did you learn about womanhood? I tried to think about the people. And I think for me, it was very media oriented. So I'm glad that the soap opera came up because I feel like even from a time that I was little, I was rejecting what I was being shown. I desperately wanted, I don't even know what to call it. I desperately wanted, I'll just say what it is. I desperately wanted the hair that little girls of color had. Like I desperately wanted that hair and I would put all the barrettes in and all the little twisty ball things and it did not work on my straight hair. It'll always fall out. And I think back to that. And I think that's in tandem with this rejection I had of everything that was around me. Right. I always wanted to be something different. It's funny because as it pertains to that womanhood image kind of thing. And I just thought about this recently too. Like I'm very non-stereotypical presenting feminine, except for my fingernails, which has always been a thing. And it's amazing because as what was that? Your nails look amazing. I noticed that earlier, but I didn't get a chance to tell you. Yeah. It's a weird touch point for me because there was this woman who was a friend of my mom's who 
literally was the embodiment of what I consider a pink lady from Greece, right? If she was seriously, I think she had a satin jacket. I don't know if I made that up, but she had these gorgeous long fingernails that were always these bright colors and the boldness of her. And this, that's all I can remember, by the way, is her fingernails. Like, I don't know anything about her character. I don't really, I don't remember any of like, you know, how she even interacted with me. I just remember her fingernails and thinking she's so bold and out of the box and I want to be her. And the same thing with the hair, like it's so out of the box. I want to be that. So I was doing this at at all times. And I think it's because of this false lesson that we learned that if you stayed in the box, you were safe, at least for me, mm-hmm. right? If you stayed in the box, you were safe. If we actually are brave enough to talk about it, it's the opposite of that. Like so many people stayed in the box and they were not safe and they kept quiet about that not being safe, even though they were doing all the things that were expected of them. I think I learned that at a really young age that it doesn't matter if you stay in the box, you're still going to be in trouble as a woman. Like that was for me. And I think that I didn't have a voice to speak about it, but my actions definitely were. My actions were definitely rejecting this notion that I was going to do any kind of thing. You know, I was in danger no matter what, by definition of me being a woman. And I knew that at a very young age. So I wasn't going to let anybody tell me what that looked like. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't still fall into the box because I did. I definitely fell into the box because it's innate in us. I think it's in our DNA even. I don't know if there are studies out there about it, but I think it's impossible for us to get away from the conditioning of what is expected to look like. And I still, I I mean, I still reject it. It's (laughs) obvious. I still reject your definitions of what I should look like or what I should present like or who I should love or who, you know, whatever, all that stuff. But I think that there's so many false lessons that, like I said at the beginning, keep us small, keep us scared, keep us in danger. And I know that's an extreme thing to put out there, but I don't love what you're saying, but I love the connection that I feel to what you're saying because it feels to me like that answers my question of, why would people that love us treat this as dangerous? Mm-hmm. And now that's a full circle for me. They're mm-hmm. doing that because they love us and mm-hmm. feel that if we stay in that box, if you just stay in this box, you'll be safe mm-hmm. or safer. One of the things that I wanted to share, this came up in my brain while we were all talking is, you know, we're talking about the fact that people want to keep us small. And I think that's very true, but I don't think that it's everyone. So I was, as you all know, in a relationship before the wonderful relationship that I am in now. This person that I was in the relationship with was not always supportive. I was going to college at the time and trying really hard to, I actually wanted to be a psychologist. That never worked out. But uh, when I was going to school, every time I had a big exam coming up, this person was a drinker and they would go out and get very, very drunk the night before a big exam. So of course I was up until two, three, four o'clock in the morning waiting for him to come home to make sure he was still alive. He was okay. He hadn't gone out and cheated on me. All those things that you worry about when you are in a relationship that is so dysfunctional. Every time I had an exam, it was the same thing. And he knew I had the exam and it was just a very dangerous situation to be in. And I never was never supported by this person. Fast forward to when I went to school for massage therapy and I was married to Joe and it was 
constant support. Oh, you need to quit your job so you can go to school for a year. Okay. Yeah. I got, I got us. I got this covered. So those things happen. They don't happen from everybody and they don't happen in such extreme ways, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because if it is the right person, like they do support, they do love and help you through support in every way, emotionally, financially, like anything that they can do to to make sure you succeed, they're going to do. Well, at the same time, someone had asked the question of the other guy and said, well, what are you going to do when she becomes a doctor? Are you going to be okay with that? In that moment, it's like something clicked in him. Like, oh my God, she's going to be a doctor. And then what am I? I'm just working in this job. I never finished high school. I never went to college. And I work in this job that, you know, you can get without high school, college education, which he was very good at his job, not taking that away from him, but I think he felt very threatened. And so I think that that is the biggest, at least for me, that was the biggest issue is threatening the, I can't let someone achieve more than me. I can't let someone be more successful than me. I can't keep her small. (laughs) And he didn't keep me small and Mm. I outgrew him. And like I said, no, nothing against him. I think he's a good guy. He wasn't the right fit for me as a husband. And I think he's grown up a lot since then as well. But I just, I think that's very important. It's not every guy. It's not every situation. It's not every person that wants to keep us small. It's those who themselves feel threatened and not capable of being able to be in a relationship with someone that might be, I wouldn't even say more successful than them, but successful in a way that they have not been able to be. And so they, they need to pull us down to keep us from achieving so that they feel superior. Absolutely. I also think that society lied to him in saying that he would have a a wife that's subservient. And when you didn't, he felt threatened. And I think that I think that Joe was raised by a woman who that is not his interpretation of marriage or femininity. I mean, I've met his mom. She would, that he has been raised in a different way. Yeah. He was raised right for sure. His mom is incredible. And Jody, to, to use your words, you said that you outgrew your first and maybe that's the feeling that from the other person is that you're going to outgrow me mm-hmm. and then you're going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Because because of my my own insecurities and my own shame about how far I've come. Right. But he could never put that into words that he was ashamed because that is an emotion that as a man, he was not allowed to feel. Mm -hmm. He had to be superior Mm -hmm. and dominating and And shame just didn't fit into the scenario and angry. Yes. He was good at the anger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that lie that they've been, that men have been fed has also boxed them in. (laughs) Oh, Other men don't support that as as freely as they support the other. When people do get out of their roles that they've right. been assigned by our families, you know, like this is how I want you to play, and we outgrow those. And whether it's within our family relationships or our significant intimate relationships, there is a feeling that people should be at the same wavelength, you know, and like, why right. and that? So I was going to say, too, I think it aligns with the original question, right, about conservative cultural norms, where we've learned these things from, you know, and this country is a, is a Christian country. We were based on, interestingly enough, freedom of religion. That was the idea was, is that we wanted to be able to practice. However, we have a long history of 
you know, really not allowing that. I think this is all intrapersonal, right? It's all been passed down generationally and it all roots back to being, you know, a westernized Christian culture, specifically for ours. We So we have those roles that we learn and we can even tie the soap opera into it, right? We have these roles that we learn, that we continue to learn, that then once they start being dismantled, like this generation of kids is doing, right? They're dismant. Well, I think it started in like, honestly, with like the women's movement started, you know, like pantsuits and suffragists and things like that, you know, it started back then, but each generation makes a step forward to erase the lines of gender expectation. And this generation in particular has erased the lines of what gender norms even are as far as presentation and relational and all, all of it. And it's freaking awesome. And I'm here for it. We hear the things that they say. And and it's interesting because as progressive as we are, it still takes us back and we go, wait a minute, where's that coming from? Yeah, Right. It's just an interesting thing to kind of pick up on and know that because I think that's the thing. I think that there's a knowing and then there's the enacting and where that comes from. You got to be super curious about where these things come from. Think about this personally and in, in the work that I've done. You know, we have this expectation about people who have told us that they're in transition, right? So I'm talking about people who are are not living within the box of the gender that was assigned to them at birth. We talk and we see these people go to the gender binary Extreme, right? So, like, I've decided that I need to look like what masculinity looks like for people to take me seriously because I want them to believe what I know in my heart, which is that I'm man, right? right? But we're talking about a group of people that are, you know, super already breaking the boundaries. So, why do they still feel like they have to fit into that? And where does that come from? It's just super interesting to me, you know, just that's what I bounced off of because I think that all the time, even with my own kids, where I'm like, where does that root back to? What right. what is that coming from? Yeah. Where are they hearing that from? Who who's the interjector that's putting that there? My mom was mortified that I was going to live in the south. I went to college in Florida and that was like she was fearful for me. I remember mm. leaving and her being in tears because what she grew up with is that the people in the south could be scary and not safe. Mm -hmm. And so she feared for me to be there where it could be scary and unsafe. You brought up the what we know until we know thing, Carrie, right? So it's interesting because you said the thing about the South and one of my childhood memories, my and actually my sister and I still do it on Thanksgiving. We don't live together. We don't get together, but we get on the phone and we watch the Macy's parade because it was like this amazing thing we couldn't even conceptualize, you know, like the, and the tree lighting and all this stuff. Right. And my image of all that New York city glam was like, it only happened at that time. And then the rest of the time it was like this seedy city that smelled like urine and crime and all, you know, like, right. Until you go there and you realize that's not what it is at all. And this all popped into my head. Cause I was like, these are the stories that we get told that we believe that keep us safe. Mm-hmm. until we learn otherwise and then it oh, blows yeah. it open and we start to think what else have i been told that isn't true right like what else about this experience is someone else's story 
it just made me curious about that side of it because I think for me, I just was always like, I don't know, maybe it's because I always thought people were lying to me. Right. That I was always like PETA vegan, like as a teenager. And like, you know, you can't in the 80s, I couldn't survive that way. There wasn't anything but rice and beans for me to eat. And my massive quest, it just, I've always been that way. But that makes me curious as to why I was always challenging what I was being told. Like what in my experience said that you guys were talking about your grandmas. And I was thinking about this one image that I have of my Nana. My mom's mom laughed and my Nana raised my mom. There's this one image of my Nana as an older lady, right? Because that was my mom's grandmother. So there's this one image of her on a motorcycle, right? And I and it's like the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I think at some point that image stuck and I thought you can do whatever you want, whatever makes your heart happy cuz Nana Great. Was right? on a motorcycle. Was on a motorcycle. Their badass self. Right? And it's that's an epiphany moment for me in this podcast because I was like sitting there thinking, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Where does it come from? But the question to bring it back around to it is, do you think there's a bit of us that has a pushback? Do you think that there's a bit of us that just wants to, you know, I'm thinking of that rebellious teen phase that we go through where we're like, no, we're not going to do it, right? We're going to be our own individual. How has that shaped your conceptualization of what they taught you, but then also of what might've become growth? Mm-hmm. I think that there's this innate feeling we all have. I can come to you, Jen, and say, the thing behind you is red. And you can say, okay, but you want to know for yourself that that's red, right? Mm. Like, You want to know that that really is. You used cities, for an instance, like New York City. Like I had the same experience as you, that, you know, the city wasn't a safe place. You shouldn't go there. It would be, there's people that'll mug you and there's guns and there's violence and it's scary and you can't be safe in the street. And so that's what I was told. But then you go there. So there's this like, you want to know for yourself. And so you go there and you're like, wait, that was totally wrong. Now my knowing says something different. So I think there's always this like, okay, my knowing is this, but do I know it for myself? Mm. Right? Mm. Like until we know it for ourselves, it's not really knowing. But I think that's part of being educated too. Mm -hmm. The difference between, you know, knowing because it's been told to you and knowing because you've experienced it or you've delved into it. You know what I mean? There's so many things from what you just said. First, (laughs) the tie back to experiential learning, the way that we learn, if it's experiential, it changes our beliefs. And that's why we have the activities in the book, Yeah, right? That's what changed us is the experiences. The other thing is what about those people that don't go to the city? Mm -hmm. Because I think that's the problem that we're dealing with. We have a lot Mm -hmm. of experts that have never been to the proverbial city. Mm -hmm. Um, And until they go, they're going to stay with the stories that they've been told. And that to me says a whole nother thing that it's important to diversify our stories so that there's more stories out there Mm -hmm. and there's more images out there. So I think last week I said, there wasn't a lot of pictures of me, Jen, um, when my kids were younger and I was mothering, but hearing that story about your grandmother and how that one image of her with a motorcycle changed you and who you were. We need more images of women doing diverse things. Yes. Luckily, the group of us collectively at different times and not all together have worked together. Yes. Or with each other. And gosh, thank God we've had each other to like Mm. talk to, 
you know, yeah. in those moments where there is downtime and we're just sharing our lives. I think about the conversation that took place before we were recording and how we just said, this doesn't feel right. We think you should ask more questions about it. And if you're isolated, you don't have anybody to bounce these thoughts off of to, and to say, well, that doesn't resonate right with me. That's not how my experience as a woman is. I did want to interject a phrase that I recently heard uh, related to what you were saying. And I've, I've used it at staff meetings. Don't believe everything you think. Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's be like curious. Happy. Yeah. And be that curious ties about in... what you don't know, right? Be curious yeah. about what you don't know. But also, and I heard it this way too, is also, you've been conditioned. Yes. So what you believe might not be the true, the ultimate truth. I'll say it that way, right? It because, could be somebody else's interpretation of the color right, red. Right. Wow. Holy Humans cow. are fascinating. They are. <laughs> okay, last question for the day. And this is another really big one. Yeah. What masks have you worn because of how womanhood was defined for you? And today I, I texted you all and said, I'm not wearing my everyday mask of my makeup or doing my hair. Because that to me is a mask. I am not ready to go in too bad all every day until I've done that. That is just a very surface mask of womanhood. Is it though? I don't so, know. Is it? <laughs> it's so curious because again, just because this is where my brain goes, the presentation of gender is huge across cultures. You know, like how do we identify the presentation of gender? And it's really interesting because I love doing um, cosplay and costuming and makeup. And I'm really good at doing like stage makeup on other people. I've done stage makeup for many productions, but something, you know, the people in podcast world might not know is that my eyes are not symmetrical because when I was little, I had eye surgery and then I had it again when I was older. Interestingly enough, this is where I talk about how we still fall into the pits of what the society's definition of things is. I don't wear makeup because I don't know how to get it right with that eye situation. I wish it was for feminist reasons. It's not. <laughs> it's because I just don't know how to get it to look right on me. Interestingly enough, when I had that, that surgery again recently, it was because in aging, our skin sags and my eyelid was not. And so it was staying open because the rest of my face was sagging, right? Yeah, I know. And I'm being told this by like a male um, ophthalmologist surgeon who is wonderful, by the way. Oh my gosh. But it's so interesting that some of it was very mechanical and some of it was also a little bit, you know, how's that going to look? You know, how's that going to look to people? And I think we do do that. I think we put the war paint on, right? We put our look on and then to take that further, because I'm just going to go there like drag queens, like that can, that over the top can you know, image yes. of what yeah. femininity is completely over the top image of it. And we love it. Right. We just think, <laughs> yes, you know, how do but I do it's, that? <laughs> it's, yeah. Right. But it's, it's so interesting that, you know, that I think that I would love to say that I don't wear makeup because of my feminist standpoint, but that's not why. And I don't know why I'm, you know, I don't know what underlies that because I think it is such a huge part of what we expect from our concept of womanhood. 
Hmm. You guys are breaking up for me. There was a period when I was in college that I had dyed my hair black, which for, you know, was different for me at the time. I were, and, and I was, I'm pale, right? So people mm-hmm. who can't see me right now don't know how pale I always am. If, if I tan, it's because I'm sunburned, I'm red, and then I go back to the same pasty white that I've always been. So black hair must have been ghost hair. Yes. And I was living in Florida. <laughs> so, right. And I had this long black hair. And I specifically remember how I felt with how other people perceived me Mm -hmm. with the black hair, right? And I remember going down this deep hole with it. Oh, I'm othered because my hair is black. Mm -hmm. I'm being treated different. And, you know, I lived in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, where things felt to me pretty ritzy. And I remember going into this like ritzy shopping area with this black hair and the way I was being treated. And, and I don't know, it just made me wanted to have black hair forever. Like (laughs) I just wanted people to like me for me and the black hair seemed to show who, who didn't, you know what I mean? There was that a choice you made for you. Yeah. 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 I went through a stage exact opposite of that. I blonded my hair because of the way that I was treated and more accepted and got more attention and it became a mask. It's not now. Now I'm mostly gray. So the blonde hides it. I'm not in a stage where I could convert the gray. That's a whole thing. But (laughs) it makes me think of that Jane Elliott thing with the blue eyes and the brown eyes. Yeah. We treat people. It is. It definitely Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. It's funny because we did go into an opposite. So you went into it wanting the attention. Yeah, or getting positive attention, and I was getting negative attention. But then I felt like the other attention I was getting was genuine attention, right? When I got and I, when I did get positive attention, I felt like it was genuine. And mm. I wanted attention Non-fair. so badly, I didn't care. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What mm. are some other masks other than makeup and hair that we that we wear wow. that when we take them off, there's somebody different? When I thought about this, I thought, oh, this is this is kind of a a big thing for womanhood and of the five of us, I know Jody's not here right now. Also the four of us that are still on what does like the basic womanhood is having children and of, of us, I'm the only one that doesn't have children. Like people who are very upset uh, personally, if they can't have children, I don't have those same feelings. And so then I'm like, Oh, I wonder if, like something, you know, broken in me or not. I don't know. But that I haven't really seen a, or received a lot of um, negative feedback about it. It's often like, oh, do you, do you like the weather and do you have children? And, and it always internally feels awkward to me. And so I know that that's just me, but I do have one, ex- one experience. It was with Carl's coworker and we were going over to their house to have like hors d'oeuvres. They were like just hosting us over there. And I was, I don't know what the word is, like mortified when they told their children to like not bother us because we didn't like kids. And I felt like, oh, that's the story they make up in their minds about me, that we don't have children because we don't like kids. And and I'm thinking I built a career around <laughs> liking children kids. and development. And so I wonder, so that didn't happen too, you know, too many years ago, but I wonder if that feeds into my own internal, you know, shortcomings or feelings of shortcoming, because I didn't follow the script of womanhood. 
Yeah, I think you're right. The women I know that that have not been able to have children, things that they have said to me makes them feel less of a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And they've had to grapple with that, that feeling. Yeah. I remember having a miscarriage and feeling that I'd failed as a woman. Mm. Mm. But do you feel that you made a choice not to have children? I don't know your story personally, so I can't say that. I don't know if you wanted children and didn't have them, or you really got to a point where you just didn't want to have children. Some people want to have children and can't. Some people don't want to have children and don't. And, you know, all of those things are okay. I don't want to say one is harder than the other. Yeah. So I always thought I would in this relationship, my husband and I just cannot have children. And, and so then it like opens up alternatives, you know, oh, adoption and whatnot. And at the time I thought, I'm not going to go into debt over something that I don't, I guess I didn't feel it strong enough Mm -hmm. to want to go into debt to do things, you know, to get that. And so And so then, you know, just time went on and I really love my life um, and and don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. And I guess I I don't feel that emotional, maybe, maybe because in my professional life, I'm contributing to the lives of of youth. Maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know. And you got to process it. Like you were going to move yourself as a woman forward through. Hey, I think you're okay. You, you process. You went through the process. And I think people who are not feeling okay have a lot to process and to get to that point to be okay. Does that make sense? I think it does to me. (laughs) Well, and I think it's where it comes from, right? Like the external, Tracy had mentioned miscarriage and I've had two of those. And one was really, you know, was really bad and really traumatic. And I kept it to myself because I didn't know other people went through it at the level that they do, by the way, it's very common. Nobody talks about that, but I think you know, what I was hearing when you were talking, Mary, was like this, what others are thinking when they experience that and their conditioning to believe things. I would never, like, just personally, I would never believe that a reason that someone doesn't have kids is because they don't like kids. You know, like, it's so interesting to me that that's where that went, but it does bring up questions in us, right? These things that happen to us that you said define us as women, right? You know, where does that definition come from? And when do we, I am going to be the feminist now, like when do we burn that shit to the ground? Honestly, it's not serving anybody. And that's the thing the masculine presenting people in our, in our world don't even understand that it's not serving them either, by the way, right? Like they don't even understand that from the get-go, we've been talking about curiosity. We've been talking about like experience and, and how we personalize those things. The bigger question for all of this has been like, where do we hear this from? And how much credit do we give it? Because man, we, and we do, by the way, even though we know in our rational brains not to give it credit, we totally give it credit. We totally buy into it and are like, yeah, why? I I just think think that takes us right back to the second question. Yeah. (laughs) How did we learn it? (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that until we share unique stories, different stories, choosing Mm. not to be a mom, having a miscarriage, going to the city. Until we share those other stories and they become as mainstream as the soap opera, mm-hmm. we're doing a disservice to young other women mm. yeah. that don't have the opportunity to go to the city, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's have- when 
one of the stories I wanted to share, because when I was thinking about this, this thought about masking and has been, I guess I'm still kind of like in, in the depths of this question in my mind, <laughs> I think about being a daughter. I don't have my parents here anymore. So after, after I've lost both of them, there was, you know, this expectation of being a daughter. And now, of course, I believe in afterlife. And I think my parents are still looking after me, but they aren't here in the physical world. There has been this feeling that I can let go of some of those daughter expectations. I no longer have to live up to them because I'm not getting the pat on the back, like, good daughter, you did the thing. You followed what we wanted you to do. There is a bit of me that's like, oh, I'm not going to disappoint anybody if I do X, Y, and Z, or nobody's going to worry about me if I do that. Or it's just a different experience now without my parents who, you know, of course, were the biggest influencers that I had. So there is this kind of unraveling of that. Am I doing this because I really want to, or because I think it's something that my parents expected me to do? You know, you've been provided the opportunity to set that mask down yeah, mm-hmm. and pick it up when you want it. Right. Or like, what was it? And why was I wearing it? Right. Sometimes we don't realize <laughs> we're wearing them. When all the kids, they all left the house, there was this mask of motherhood that I wore mm-hmm. and now I don't need it on every day and being able to put it down. It has yeah. been interesting. And I think that I got myself into some trouble with my mask of motherhood in my first marriage, because I was so busy trying to show that I was perfect to these Mm -hmm. little people in the rest of the world Mm -hmm. that my children didn't recognize who I was behind it. Uh, I just want to go back to, to something that Mary said earlier, Mary, I do think that there is something to the effect of you get, you do so much nurturing in your day job. Like, so if you had that need to nurture, you're doing so much of it there. And you probably need a break from it after it. <laughs> you do need a break. <laughs> a break is highly advisable. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's sometimes that I'm like, oh, parenting looks awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still sitting here, Mary, feeling like I don't know what I was trying to say to you before. I just think that you're perfect the way you are. Mm-hmm. And I just want you to know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I am what I am. Sometimes I think the messaging I hear is, and I believe that parenting is the most one, a wonderful thing for individuals, but you'd be explaining something to me that I have no idea about. So I just, you know, I'll take, take your word on it. Man, I see some, I see some great things and I see some, man, that, that looks hard. I do uh, pour a lot of myself into, you know, into my work. I feel like that's exhausting enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't mm-hmm. imagine coming home and having to do that, <laughs> but I think you do what you do. <laughs> You do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One last question before we wrap this up. Is there a mask that you currently wear that you'd like to put down? Everybody knows mine. (laughs) Y'all know my mask. I don't, I don't want to be a wife anymore. I don't, I, I think what's really funny about it is, is I think I never wanted to be in the first place. It was really shocking to people when my per- my current partner and I were together 10 years before we got married. Speaking of, you know, defined roles and things like that, people were always like, when are you going to put a ring on that finger? What, what's, what are you guys waiting for? You know, we had kids too. And it was me. I kept saying, no, you know, no, I don't want to do this. And I think 
it, it's just now when I look back on it, I, I just had this idea from the life that I had been through as a kid and the things that I had seen as a kid, that that was something I was really afraid of. Now, crone middle-aged me <laughs> in all my wisdom would say, you know, there was a reason for that. I mean, well, isn't there always a reason? Like all behavior is communication. There's always a reason. And we need to be curious about those reasons and um, get to the root of them. I don't think I ever really wanted it. I don't know why I did do it. I think because I wanted the party honestly. Maybe you wanted the knowing, right? Like, we Or maybe about. I wanted the knowing, maybe I wanted to see what it was. And I think part of that is because it interestingly ties to what Mary has said too, is not only those external voices that tell me what it is, but also because I give so much of myself um, in everything that I do, that I want to be able to continue to have the freedom to do that. I think there was a part of me that was worried in a way that I couldn't, if I was in this on the paper, monogamous, you know, till death do us part thing in the finality of it was, was like a thing for me. So that's, that's where I'm at in my life right now. Um, also just cause I'm that person, I don't want to wear the mask of untreated mental health anymore either, because I'm at that point in my life where I'm working very, very hard on my mental health. So much of what we've talked about today is stigmatized. Like we have these societal conceptions weight with these things that keep us from talking about them. Maybe to tie it back to what we originally said is, you know, that idea of, of education, of experience, of knowing, it liberates us, it changes things, and people are afraid of change, ourselves included. In the interest of honesty, those are the two that in the process of putting down right now. Mm -hmm. oh. and brief, what you just and very brave. <laughs> Absolutely. Anybody else think, have one? I think when I think about it, I kind of had a hard time struggling with thinking about that. Of course, I did talk about the whole like, I'm my mother's daughter, I'm my parents' child mask. I think when I think about, you know, what I would like to put down as far as a mask is the assumption of knowing. I just want to be curious about things. Like I want to put down the mask. Like I have, like, I know the answer. Like I don't know the answer. <laughs> I just want to be able to be curious. I don't want to show up and act like I've got it together and that I know what I'm saying and I know what I'm doing. Like we're all just moving forward. And I think it's important to stay curious and, and not be the knower to, to listen and to to want to learn and to move forward. I just think it's so super important. It's okay to not know, you know, in some situations. And I think that sometimes, especially like in our professional lives, it can be hard to put that mask down, the not knowing mm -hmm. and to listen. For me, I think that's, you know, one of the masks I want to put down is the, it's okay to not know and it's okay to be curious and show that you don't know, like you don't have to know, but you do have to be curious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that. So insightful. That resonates with me, Carrie, just because I know you're a leader in your role and so am I. There's this idea that if somebody's coming to me with um, a problem that I have to know the answer to it. And it's almost liberating to say, you know what? I don't know. Let's talk this through mm -hmm. and, and figure out. I used to think of uh, like, I'm a, a party of my own and then I would have to come up with it, but I really like collaborating mm -hmm. to find an answer that everybody mm -hmm. can be comfortable with. Absolutely. What about you, Mary? Do you have any you want to put down or? 
Um, I, th- this one isn't necessarily a role as in womanhood. I think it's, a, it's about taking off a mask to be more authentic and to be more real and more vulnerable. And I was thinking about, so every year I'm on a um, suicide prevention committee. I do the um, candlelight vigil. I coordinate the candlelight vigil every year. And I remember we asked people to be the bravest, I think, to come up to the microphone and do a testimonial during it. I remember a, a colleague of mine saying that, you know, during this this pandemic, she's trying to live more authentically and she was going to give a testimonial. And of course, I had no idea, you know, what her struggles were. Not that we're like, we're close. She works in an, another agency, but I thought, boy, here I am. I feel like I'm because I have two family members that have suicided. I've never mentioned that during these prevention meetings, nothing. And I sometimes think, well, maybe that's because maybe I'll break down and that feels like really, like I, I want to separate professional from personal, but really how does that serve serving me and serving my colleagues on this committee? Because, you know, it's, it's about humanity and connecting with people. So I've been rolling that over in my mind about how to be more authentic in that particular role. And I don't know if I can see myself doing a testimonial in front of the crowd, but I'm mulling that over in my mind. Mary. That's, that's the heavy mask I'd like to put down. Mm. That is, wow, wow, wow. Again, so many thoughts. Um, the courage just to mull it over and, and pose the question. Mm. Yeah. Is, Powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'll just share, like, when my brother suicided, it was hidden. It was veiled in shame. The story that we received was not the real story. That's kind of like entrenched in in the whole experience too, only finding out later, years later, that it was a suicide. So that's that's a whole second trauma. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just to close it out, I feel like the loss was it dishonored him Mm. and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Thank (laughs) you, Mary. The mask that I am trying to put down in the the book was maybe the first step for me is I present, and even Jody had mentioned that I present as very type A and very, I've worked really hard to show perfection. I need to put that down. So even my children can see that mm. I'm messy. I'm messy and it's okay that I'm messy. I'm a leader and I don't always know the answer. A mom and I make mistakes and that I'm human. Sometimes I put that mask back on without realizing it. And then I'm like, oh, shit, doing it again. Mm-hmm. The trauma response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am my most truest when I put it down. Sometimes when I put it down, it hurts because people mm. are mystified by what they see. Um, I think I talked a little bit about it in the book when Carrie and Danny are with me in Dallas. And Danny says to Carrie, I've never seen Tracy like this. Mm. Like she's a different person. It's like she's free. And then mm. Carrie's response to her was, well, you're really actually seeing who she is. <laughs> there was such a disconnection. There's very few people that I would let see behind that mask. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that, Trace, because I'm thinking, I love that Tracy's messy. <laughs> like, I think that's why we're friends. Like, we connect over the messiness, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're one of the very few people I've ever let see that. Yeah. Do you think the reason that it hurts, I mean, aside from the vulnerability, right? Ew, feelings. The podcast listeners don't know yet, but I'm very like, 
whoop, anti-feelings for myself, but all I do for others is get them to bear their feelings. So it's very dichotomous and I'm aware of that. Do you think that the reason that it hurts is because there is a part of us, and I'm going to say this because I'm big into the wild woman part of our, our psyche, right? There's a part of us that we're dishonoring and we know that. We know that we're dishonoring that part of us by playing this role, by wearing this mask, by being a false presentation to our true mm. self. And that ultimately, because I am a mental health based person, like that dulls the shine of our, of our inner spirit, you know, like that's, we know it is, we don't know a way around it, I guess, until we do, which has kind of been the theme, right? I think that's where the pain lays is because it's so contrary to our truth. Mm -hmm. And why are we giving people that power over us? Why are we giving that away? Yeah. No, it's heavy. Again, that same chapter that I write about, I remember being in that hotel room and thinking either I let that wild woman in me Mm -hmm. go. I either had to let her die and focus on in the marriage that I was in, or I had to embrace her go of that, that role as caretaker. Like they no longer could both exist in the same place anymore. It was such a, I either learned to love her and let people see her or I let her go. And it was such a, almost like I need to, to grieve her. Mm. That's the part, you know, about the, the moving on is the letting go. There's grief of letting go, even of the expectations Mm -hmm. that are placed upon Mm -hmm. us. Because sometimes people who love us have placed those expectations upon us, right? Mm -hmm. So you're still, even though it's something that doesn't resonate with you, you're still letting go of something that was placed upon you in love, right? Mm -hmm. To make you safe. Yeah. Yeah, to keep you safe. Okay, ladies. (sighs) All right. We'll be back. We'll be back. We are we are gonna wrap this up. Can I tell everybody how to make tea this week? Yes. To make their yes. Tea? All right. So what I want everybody to do is to take out a piece of paper if you journal, open up your journal and really write down what mask do I wear the most? And then I want you to create an art project, draw a picture of that mm. mask, decorate mm. it if you want to, get silly with the glitter, but really put some time into what mask do I wear the most. And then I want you to share it with somebody, somebody you're comfortable with share the mask with somebody. And then if you're really comfortable with them and you get bonus points, if you share what's under it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, Oh, good luck to anybody who who takes on that task. I might have to try it. (laughs) Thanks guys. Thank you. All right. Bye everyone. We'll be back.